Hey everyone, this is Becoming a Bible Nerd. I am Carrie Hunt, and I'm so glad that you are joining us. I believe this ancient Eastern text was never meant to study alone, so we choose to do it in community. We will take one book a semester, one chapter a week, and really dig in to understand the context and culture that the book was written in so that we can better understand how to apply what God was saying to our lives. Our goal is to equip you and your community to fall more in love with Jesus because you have fallen in love with his word. This season, we are going through the book of Romans, and today's episode is Romans chapter 3, I Am a Sinner Saved Through Jesus. All right, well, one of the things that we're going to do before we get started is I am going to be vulnerable and honest with you. Um, You know, I'd like for this to be a 100% professional, excellent podcast, and so my goal and my heart is to prepare... um, for that. And at the same time, I try to be as real with y'all as I can because I'm a regular person. I'm a mom. Um, you know, I have a crazy schedule just like you do. And the, the, the idea is, hey, we can all do this together. You don't have to have a certain title or position in ministry to understand the scripture, um, that we can study this together even in our crazy, busy lives, and we can tell other people about this and invite people into our homes and and be a part of this. So as crazy as my week was, normally I go over this out loud, what I'm going to say, and, you know, prepare just reading over my notes over and over, and literally this morning I read over them once. So uh, by the grace of God, I pray that today you can understand the mush that's in my brain, because I'm just going to be honest with you. Romans is not easy. I feel like I'm too dumb for Paul. (laughs) He is so intelligent, and then, of course, speaking the way that the Greeks spoke um, 2,000 years ago, just the style of it and the way that things are worded is just really hard for my little brain to comprehend, and... uh, So if you are going through this going, oh, wow, like, I don't know what I just read. You're not alone. But through the power of the Holy Spirit and us taking the slow, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Just sitting on a few verses at a time and leaning on the help of people that do understand this. And they are helping us by putting it in their own words. You know, to me, some people come down on commentaries. Well, that's man's word. Well, do you go to church on Sunday and listen to man's word? I mean, basically, a commentary is a written sermon is the way I look at it. So we're not going to get legalistic. We're going to just allow the Holy Spirit to move. So that's my little warning for today. A little um, more scatterbrained than normal. Um, And also, I just want to celebrate with y'all that I am now officially working from home with Becoming a Bible Nerd. And props to you people that, one, that work at home. Wow, this is a whole new journey. I'm busier than I ever was before. And also props to you that are stay-at-home moms because you don't have time in your schedule either. You're running around like crazy. I feel like I'm kind of trying to be in both worlds and it is really busy. And so um, I just want to say you're doing a good job. And if you're tuning in today, that means that you've studied this and just pat yourself on the back. Good job. Um, Okay, so chapter three. Dr. Constable, and whenever I put these, when I say things like this, it's because I want you to know that this is where I got this. I'm not like the super brilliant person that just comes up with all this stuff. Dr. Constable's notes, that's a great um, commentary for you to get. You can get them on Amazon or on his website. But he said that, he recaps for us, that in chapter two, Paul shows God's judgment of all people is determined by character, 
rather than ceremony. I'm going to say that again. He's showing that God's judgment of his people is determined by character. What's on the inside rather than ceremony? What are they doing? Are they checking all the boxes and doing all the right things and going through the motions? Jew and Gentile are on the same level regarding their standing with God. Still, God does make a distinction between Jew and Gentile, and Paul deals with that distinction. They are very different, but they don't get an elevated status, or maybe they are not going to be um, exempt from the wrath of God if they don't get their character right. Um also, this is going to be starting out as an imaginary conversation that Paul is having with a Jew. He is a Jew, and he knows how to debate. So he is thinking of every possible debate that they could come up with, and he's addressing them. So he starts this chapter with four rhetorical questions. And the beginning of it says, so what advantage does a Jew have, or what is the benefit of circumcision if they are all on the same level? Well, Dr. Constable paraphrased this. He said a better way to, or a modern way to ask it would be, if Jew and Gentile are both guilty before God, then what advantage is there for being a Jew or being circumcised? Well, the Old Testament regarded both of these as privileges. The advantages, Paul says, is much in every way. They were entrusted with the spoken words of God, the law, and the prophets. So all of those were on scrolls. God's instruction, the law that he gave Moses at Sinai, and the words of the prophets. The enduring word um, said that they were God's library keepers. His heavenly treasure was consecrated to them. And we know I mean, here at Bible Nerds, our vision is to connect you with God's word and help you understand it in its culture and context so that you can fall in love with him. So we know that God, we get to know God more intimately by knowing his word. And so he's saying, that's your advantage. You were the, I love how it, it was worded. You were God's library keepers. His heavenly treasure was given to you. So you are at, um, you are privileged more than advantaged. Um, then Paul anticipates an immediate objection. So he goes into verse three. What then, if some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? What he is saying, basically, what he's asking is, in other words, if we break the covenant through our unbelief in Jesus, will he break the covenant that he made with us through Abraham? This is, well, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to um, go on to the next verse and then we'll talk about it. His response was absolutely not. God must be true, even if everyone else is a liar, as it is written. And then he quotes from Psalms 51, 4. Quoting from um, Psalms, that's very rabbinic and would have brought to mind of his audience the entire chapter in context, not just specifically that verse. That was a very rabbinic thing to do. Instead of saying the whole chapter, they could say one verse and the Jewish people had everything memorized and they were, they in their culture, they learned like this. And so they would have brought the whole thing into context. But so basically Paul is Say, asking the question, if we break the covenant through our unbelief, will God break his covenant? In today's um, theological world, this is called replacement theology. And many, many believers believe that God does have this new covenant with the church and not with Israel because they broke the covenant. So we need to unpack this today because I am not a subscriber to replacement theology. Now, I follow many people that are. I work 
around people who are that subscribe to this. And here, here's the deal. This is an ancient text that is written in poetry and metaphors and, and in truth and in ways that they communicated 2,000 years ago, and it's been translated into our language. And we are, and I say we, Christian people and scholars are trying our best to decipher this and figure out, and we are natural, and God is supernatural, and we're trying to figure out his truth. So I don't necessarily feel like when people have a different theology than me, apart from the only way to God is through Jesus, for example, this replacement theology, I don't think that they are false teachers. I don't think that they're enemies. I think that we are just interpreting scripture differently and we can still be friends. So this idea that if Israel does not believe in Jesus, will God break his covenant? We see that God cannot break his covenant. The message was to get right with God. That's what Paul was saying. So the Jewish people as a whole rejected Jesus. We know this. And the question in the, the question that is, I'm t- telling y'all that I'm scatterbrained today. My brain is only halfway working. But the question was, would their rejection lead to God breaking his faithfulness? Well, God made an ancient covenant. And he, in a covenant in the ancient world, if someone broke the covenant, the other person was legally um they legally had the right to not uphold their side of the covenant. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 15, because that is where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And I'm going to read to you verses four through nine. And it says, now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. And he's talking about Ishmael. Because remember, Abraham decided to take matters in his own hand, slept with his maidservant and created Um, an heir to his kingdom, but God is coming and saying, nope, he's not going to be your heir. Instead, one comes from your own body and will be the heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. So God is telling Abraham, I'm going to make you into a people group, a nation. Your offspring is going to be as far as the numbers are in the of stars in the sky. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So his belief in what the Lord was saying made him righteous. He also said to him, I am Yahweh who brought you from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So this whole promise between God and Abraham is about land and it's about offspring and it's about blessing. But he said, Lord God, how can I know that I will possess it? And God says, bring me a three-year-old cow and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So basically, he ends up having Abraham split the animals down the middle and divide them. So there's a path in between their carcasses. The sun sets And God puts Abraham into a deep sleep. See, the covenant should have been God walking through the animals and then Abraham walking through the animals. And in the ancient world, that was saying, may what happened to these animals happen to one of us if we break the covenant. And so here, God puts Abraham through a deep sleep. And then this is what happens in verse 13. 
Then the Lord said, Abraham, know this for certain. Your offspring will be foreigners in a land that does not belong to them. They will enslave and oppress, be oppressed for 400 years. However, a judge, I will judge the nation they serve. And afterward, they will go out and for, with many possessions. But you will go to your father in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, the land that they were promised, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. So again, God is promised, kind of telling them what's going to happen. They're going to be in Egypt. They're going to be enslaved, but then they will come back. And then in verse 17, it says, when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. So God reveals himself as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Notice that two things go through these carcasses. But Abraham doesn't. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, I give you this land and your offspring from the brook of Egypt. And then he gives the borders. Okay, so this is very important. God alone passed through and he knew that Abraham would never be faithful enough to keep the covenant and the covenant could be broken. So God went also in the place of Abraham. Thus, the covenant, even when Abraham falls short, cannot be broken. God is faithful and he will keep his covenant with his people. Okay, verse five, Paul goes on and says, but if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? Is God's unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. How would God judge the world? So basically, Paul here is correcting some misunderstanding before it even forms. And I'm going to read from Dr. Constable's notes. And this is kind of what he said on it. Because again, the way Paul writes is kind of hard to understand at times. And it says, God will not show favoritism to the Jews, even though by their unfaithfulness, they glorify the faithfulness of God. So we get to see that God's going to keep his covenant even while they are unfaithful. And they can say, well, see, our unfaithfulness is glorifying you because the world gets to see how faithful you are. Even if he did so, he would be partial and not qualified to sit in the judgment of mankind. God is going to have to judge the Jews if they do not get in right standing with God at the end of time. So why do we keep talking week after week about Jews and Gentile and who is right and who is wrong and who is better and who is favored? Well, I think it's because the Holy Spirit knew that the same root sin would be alive and active in the church 2,000 years later. We're kind of slow like that. The Holy Spirit has to work out self-righteousness in all of our lives, including myself. Um, and I wanted to share just a little personal uh, story with you. Um, I was raised in church with two healthy, happy parents. Um, what was seen at church, like with their outward expressions of Christianity, was also seen behind closed doors in the home. They really were who they presented themselves to be. They also honored and respected each other. Well, guess what that means? My brother and I got a jump start. At, we got an early advantage to the race, but we still had to run our own race and we have to cross the finish line. But my parents, they got a late start. They didn't become believers until later in life whenever they had children. And so my dad was 30, I think. My mom was in her uh, mid-20s. And some of you, this might be your story even later in life you came to the Lord. Or maybe in your, your path, you have some hurdles that you have to run through. Where my brother and I didn't. We didn't the hurdles were removed. My parents removed the hurdles. So maybe you have some hurdles. 
And if anything, we as humans should look at the people that have the longer, harder path with mad respect for them. We should cheer the heck on for them because just because some people's paths are harder and we've had an advantage because somebody went before us and removed obstacles and gave us a head start, we need to be cheering those people on. And that is a picture of the Jews. They got a head start at this. They were given God's law. They got to know him in an intimate way. And these Gentiles are coming in kind of late into the game and they've got some hurdles because they've got to unlearn a lot of ways of how worship of a deity should be because the worship that they were participating in was dirty and degrading. And so they've got the hurdles. They've got the longer path. And so the Jewish people should have been on the sidelines cheering for them. In fact, we had, we're cross-country coaches at my daughter's school. And one of the girls yesterday, and she does this all the time, but it just really even blessed me yesterday, is when she finishes her race, I mean, she's dying, but she'll go to the people left she runs back down the track towards them so that she can cheer them on. And yesterday she even ran in with the last person. And that is a picture of what Jesus was calling the Jewish nation to do. Like, hey, you got a head start. You're going to finish this race and I need you to turn around and you go cheer on these Gentiles. Don't put more hurdles in their way. So in the end, Paul is saying that we all fall short, that we all need saving, and he is faithful and just to save. Whew, well, we got to truck along. It's been 17 minutes already, but in verse 7, it says, but if by my lie, God's truth is amplified, and to, well, this is, okay, this is more of the same, that when we fall we see the faithfulness of God, but we can't just lie in that and say, oh, well, see, I'm going to continue in my sin because that glorifies God. Paul's assuming that some readers are going to ask, why not advocate for doing evil so that um, good may come if it is true that man's unrighteousness is the presupposition of God's righteousness? Paul knew that this was going to be a question to be asked. So in verse 9, he says, what then? Are we any better? No, not at all. Both Jew and Gentile are all under sin as it is written. And then he goes on to link seven Old Testament passages to show that his above statement is true. This is something, again, very rabbinic, and it's called stringing pearls. When you take bits and pieces of the Old Testament and you tie them all together. Um, his message was that no one is righteous or kind. Everyone sins by word and deed, and there is universal depravity. Well, the enduring word ends up summing up and saying the Apostle Paul wants us to understand our complete inability to save ourselves. And that is where we need to let people in on society today. People are not coming to a place where they realize that they are totally unable of saving themselves. We in our Christian faith, we tend to focus so much on God's love that it actually uh, is encouraging people to stay in their sin. We have to have a balance of all of the truth of God's word. That means, hey, yes, God loves you and there's nothing that you can do to turn him away, but that also God has a day of wrath coming and we have to get right with God. And the only way to get right with God is through salvation in Jesus. That is the only way that you can escape 
God's wrath and the wrath is coming. We've got to tell them the whole truth because when we tell partial truths, when we just talk about the wrath of God, um, you know, oh, God's going to get you. If, if you don't do that without the love, well, then people get hard hearted and that, and they feel that God is cruel. When we just talk about the love of God, then people just continue in their sin and they're going to be blown away on the day of wrath when they have to pay for their sins. So we ha- Paul wants his audience to understand that we have complete inability to save ourselves, but there's good news coming. He's, he's going to bring the good news here in a minute. Um, the law cannot save us. And that's really what he was wanting the Jews to know. The law cannot save us from sin. The law was there to show that we are sinners and in need of a savior. Um, the enduring word commentary said the Jewish people of Paul's day took every passage of the old Testament describing evil and applied it to the Gentiles, but not to themselves. I thought that was funny, but I think that we're guilty of that sometimes too. You know, in church, when the pastor's preaching something and you're nudging the person next to you, uh, Huh? Are you listening? Well, the Jewish people did the same thing, but the law showed all people that they needed to be saved. The law showed that we stand before a judge or we will stand. And the law showed very clearly what sin is. And I love that Jesus summed up, somebody asked him one time, what's the, the greatest of the laws to obey? And he said, to love God and to love others. So now the good news in verse 21 starts. He says, but now apart from the law, God's righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe with no distinction. We are going to sit here for a while because there's a lot to unpack in these two little verses. So the but now apart from the law, he's saying there is no earning, no deserving. It is just a free gift. Um, Also, he is saying that there is a new covenant from judgment to justification. Justification, remember, is a legal term that is when you're pronounced innocent. Also, he says, but now apart from the law, God's righteousness comes through faith. Well, this word righteousness is often misunderstood. We often associate this word with right behavior. Who did Jesus rebuke more than anyone? The Pharisees, right? And they had the right behavior. Remember, it's about character in our hearts, not outward behavior. Even though the outward behavior should reflect what's in our heart, he cares first about the heart. It's a free gift. This righteousness is a free gift to be in right standing with God. At this point, the hope is that you know your identity in Christ and your worth. And when we know that, righteous is not who we are. And it's not, wait, wait, wait. When we know that, righteous is who we are, not what we do. We all know these Christians that continuously cut other people down so that they can elevate themselves in man's eye. But when we know our worth and who we are, we move away from trying to impress man and we live for God. And we know that God's law is to love him and to love others. We start caring about them instead of exposing them. Okay, so another part of this section, God's righteousness comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe with no distraction. So it comes through. My commentary, one of the ones I used, said it's not by faith, but through faith. Again, not because our faith is earned. It comes through our faith. 
And then this word to all who believe to the Jewish people, this word was um, automatically had action attached to it. Remember, we've said before, even the demons believe if you're using our English term believe, but the word here denotes action. There's going to be a transformed heart and you are going to live differently. You're going to be set apart with no distinction, Jew and Gentile. Now, one of the things that he said earlier in this verse, and I kind of skipped over, is that this is witnessed by the law and the prophets. What he's explaining is that he did not invent this theology. This was revealed through the Old Testament from day one. And then he goes into this um, this famous verse. If you grew up in um, the, the 80s or 90s, like I did, this, something very popular was to get people to memorize the Romans road. And that was a list of scriptures found in Roman that would lead someone to salvation. And the very first one was this verse 23, for all has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, I never realized that Paul had been showing the same truth for the 843 verses before we actually get here. I mean, he is saying this over and over and over. And I think it's because he's having to undo years and years of traditional religion that was in the Jewish mind. Um, this fall, the word fall, we all fall short of the glory of God. This word fall corresponds to the Hebrew word chata, and it means to miss the mark on a target. And the word glory was the same word used in Exodus describing the shining rays of light on Moses' face. Um, so verse 24, this is going to be getting a little bit technical. We're going to use a lot of Christian words that are not common in our society. And we're going to break that down. And I found some interesting things. Verse 24 says, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented himself as a propitiation. Okay, lots of big words, lots of Christian words. And when we hear them, we're like, oh yeah, I recognize them. But I really don't know what they mean, even though in the ancient world, they used these words. So this word justified, they are justified freely by his grace. This is a legal term in a court of law. And it is when somebody was pronounced not guilty. And this solves our guilty verdict. If we're justified freely by grace, that means that we're going on the day of wrath to be um we are going to be declared not guilty. So that's what justified means. This word redemption, through the redemption that is in Christ, was a very common word in the slave market. It was when a slave was set free, and this solves our slavery issue from sin. Now, here's a big one that we're going to spend some time on. God presented himself as a propitiation. That's definitely not a word that we use, but this was a common word in all religions of this day, and it was solving the offending problem. You see, with all the gods, you there is an offense. Like you, you could do something that did not, that they did not like. And in you know, outside of, of the god that we worship, these these fallen entities that people had worshipped, they always needed to appease the gods. And so, even when I was in Thailand, I would go through the, the villages and you would see people kind of coming out to what to me looked like a mailbox or that's where your mailbox would be and it would be a spirit house and they were always bringing out fresh fruit and flowers. They were trying to solve an offense problem. If they offended the God, they wanted to um, alleviate that and so they were offering these things so that the, um, the God would, um, would forgive them. And in the Jewish faith, this word propitiation um, that solved the offending problem um, was dealt with 
once a year for one of the holy feast. So in the Jewish faith and part of the law that was given to Moses, God told them that there would be seven different feasts, holy days that they were to celebrate every single year. And he told them how to celebrate them. Well, one of these holy days is called Yom Kippur. It's coming up October 4th through 5th this year. Another way that you might have heard of it is called the Day of Atonement. This was the most solemn of all of the feasts because they it was when the nation dealt with their sin. So sin of the nation had to be dealt with once a year on the Day of Atonement. The high priest would perform elaborate rituals to atone for these sins. But before he even did that, he had to perform elaborate rituals just to atone for the sins of himself and his family because he was about to enter a part of the temple that no one was allowed to go into. A part of the temple called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was found and the Ten Commandments were inside the Ark. And that is where God's present was, presence was on earth before the Holy Spirit came. So that is the only place that his presence was unless he decided to manifest himself somewhere. But just on a day-to-day -day basis, his presence was in that Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. And the only person allowed in that section of the temple was the high priest after he had consecrated himself on one particular day of the year when he went in to do a ritual that would forgive the sins of a nation. So he would go into the Holy of Holies and he would bring two goats with him. The first goat he sacrificed for the sin and rebellion of the nation, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, another word for uh, mercy seat, actually the word that was used before mercy seat was propitiation. God, it was solving the of appeasing God's wrath for that year, propitiation. But then something else happened. He used the second goat where he would lay hands on it, the high priest, and he would confess the sins of the nation. And it was believed that there was a transference where the sins of the nation actually went onto the scapegoat. And then they would release that scapegoat into the wilderness and the goat would carry the sins of the people and the people would then be forgiven for one year. So it was actually removing their sins for one year. And that word is expiation, E-X-P-I-A-T-I-O-N. So God actually was propitiation or through Jesus's death, that was propitiation and expiation. It was his death on the cross appeased God's wrath. The high priest didn't need to go once a year and sacrifice a goat and pour that, that blood on the mercy seat anymore. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is it was once and for all. It wasn't for just one year, but he was also the scapegoat. He, the sin of the world actually went onto him. And so God solved all of these things so that we can go freely to God. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, the veil that divided the Holy of Holies with the rest of the temple was split in half from top to bottom. And that was signifying you no longer have to go through these rituals. There's a new covenant because of Jesus. He now bore the sins of the world and his blood was poured out as a propitiation for our sins. There's something so beautiful that happened on the cross. And we need people to realize that they were sinners that needed that to happen before they can ever even receive that, um, that what, what Jesus did. Okay, so verse 25 ends up saying, through faith in his blood. Well, let me read it from the, the word because 
in my notes. Sometimes I don't put it all. For circumcision, nope, nope, sorry. Not there. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the time so that so that he would be righteous and declared righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. So I'm continuing verse 25. That's where I'm sorry. I got lost for a minute. So he presented himself as propitiation. We talked about that. And then it goes on to say, through faith in his blood. What I would automatically teach, if I hadn't studied this, would be that we have to have faith in his blood. And I love, I read two Jewish New Testament commentaries. These are written by Jewish believers. And I was like, oh, wow, this is interesting. The Jewish New Testament commentary said, we tend to read this as Yeshua's blood magically atones for our sins if we have faith in it. Yes, I would agree with that. But it really is read through the obedience of Jesus in his death, we now receive salvation basically so this word it's um through faith in his blood this through faith is talking about jesus's faith the greek word is diapistos and it's jesus's faithfulness to god he was obedient to death and pouring out his blood in order to cleanse redeem and sanctify mankind and blood is a metaphor for death and so it's basically read through obedience in his death through Jesus's obedience, he demonstrated his righteousness. This word demonstrate reveals that this is not behind closed veil anymore with the high priest. He demonstrated it to the world where all could see his righteousness. We broke that down um, here recently. But in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. What that is saying is that there was a postponement of punishment for those that came before Christ. He he postponed his wrath so that Jesus could die on the cross so that there would be a way to get right with God. Okay, I'm wrapping this up. So, again, he's going to go in some more that we cannot boast in our works. We cannot boast in our faith. Like, it really does. Like, we have to believe to receive it. But all of this is stuff that God, through Jesus, did. It was a free gift. So, in conclusion, I'm going to read verses 29 through the end. It says, or is God for Jews only? He is not, is he not also for Gentiles? Yes, for Gentiles too, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we not cancel the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Basically, he is telling the Jewish people that he's going to justify all people. He says through one God. Well, one of the most famous rituals that Jewish people go through is reading the Shema. They get this from Deuteronomy and they say it every day. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. There is one God. And he's like, if you truly believe that there's one God, then he is going to justify Jews. He's going to justify Gentiles. We all have to go through him. I'm going to conclude by reading. I know this went long, but I found this to be fascinating. It is in the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Background Commentary. And it says, we live in an age that is not comfortable with the notion of sin. The idea that God might actually be angry with people for their sin is not pleasant. But we will not appreciate just why Christ died 
and that being such good news for the world until we adjust our thinking to match that of the biblical authors. They knew the reality of sin and they knew the reality of a holy God who would not tolerate sin. Only through the sacrifice of Christ paying the debt incurred by the sin incurred by our sin that we could never pay, could God make a way for accepting people who are by nature unacceptable to him. We have to tell people the good news, but in order for them to see that it's good, we have to show them that like us, they are sinners. This is what God's law says. This is the standard and we fall short of it. We all do. Ray Steadman I'm going to end with a, a question that he asked on his daily devotion of Romans. Do we gratefully think and live as persons of worth because of God's amazing undeserved gift of his righteousness? Or do we continue to vainly seek worldly affirmation? When people of this world see Christians who know their worth because of God's amazing gifts, that becomes attractive to them and they will start asking questions and they will want to taste and see that the Lord is good. I know this was long today. Um, we're going to go on to chapter four next week. It's going to start getting really, really good. I think we're moving finally past um, the point where Paul is trying to drive home to the Jews that they need salvation just as much as the Gentiles. And since we are Gentiles, <laughs> um, it's going to just be good to, to move on. And I'm excited what God is going to be showing us. I hope you are enjoying this. I want to tell you, if you felt like the first three chapters were hard, they were. It's going to get better. Stick with us. I'll see you next week. Happy reading.